that is, it's because God's face is against them. Psalm 37 puts it so well. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Don't live in constant anxiety because of the new person who's come onto the scene and has all the attention and is doing evil. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. And be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Here, in short, is what I think David is saying in this section. Eventually, every person ends up in crisis. Because I'm a pastor, I think I see this more than others. And I'm not trying to be morbid with you, but it's real. Everybody here, we're all going to a deathbed. We're all going to be in crisis. That's life. That's how it works. Even the best life ends in death, which is the ultimate crisis. In the moment of crisis, wisdom sees that the righteous have hope. However bad things get, and they can get really bad for the righteous, the righteous still know that God is near to them. He is in it. He bends over them. He listens to them, and he will ultimately act for them. On the other hand, when the wicked reach the inevitable crisis point, they look for something bigger or better to hold them and find only a determined God who will erase them. To put it another way, when the unbeliever is dying, they are just dying. I've seen it. Maybe you've gotten to see it up close. I know I have. When they're dying, they're just dying. It's over. But when a believer dies, it's different so different. There's always a profound sense, even in the room, you can feel it, that something wonderful is about to happen, that something is just beginning, and that it all means so much more. To be outside Christ, to be outside of Christ, is to live and die alone and then be forgotten. And this is why we shouldn't be so angry with our unbelieving friends and family. We should have far more pity, far more pity and compassion than we do. To be outside Christ is to die alone and be forgotten. The wise person sees this. The wise person, even a teenager, if you're a wise teenager, you can see this now. You don't have to wait till you're 85. You can see now where it's all going. He or she sees it before it happens. They don't need a deathbed realization. The wise grasp it now. God is near to the brokenhearted to the humble, and to those who love him. Isaiah taught this so powerfully. His ministry, if you know a little bit about Isaiah, his ministry was a ministry of broken hearts. It really was. The people were facing terrible judgment, and Isaiah is grasping throughout the book uh, for some hope in it all. It seemed like the faithful were just being carried away with the unfaithful. Everybody was going into exile, the good and the bad, the people really following God, the people who weren't following God. And in the midst of all that pain, Isaiah writes these words. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. So far makes sense, right? I'm high, I'm holy, be in awe of me. But then what does he say? And also, and also I dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the hearts of the contrite. And then later on, Isaiah predicts the coming of a new minister 
His time is sort of wearing down, but he sees through prophetic vision a new day, the day of Christ, and he writes these words. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to who? To the rich, the famous, the powerful, the wicked? No, to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. If you're struggling to see this, and we all struggle at times to see it, if you're struggling to see this gift of wisdom, come back to the cross with me for a moment and see it fulfilled in Christ. As we've been seeing all along the Psalms, and if you take nothing else from this series and the Psalms and this, this is the most important thing to take from our series. And I can't say it enough. The Psalms never ring fully true in your heart until you place them in the mouth of Jesus Christ and understand how he sings them and how he fulfills them. And so look at verse 18, but put it in the mouth of the suffering Savior. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Jesus was crushed, wasn't he? Gethsemane was the place of an olive press where the olives were literally crushed. And he goes there to pray and to be crushed. When his heart was pierced, it ran with water and blood. Behold and see, was there ever any sorrow like unto his sorrow. But what does the New Testament tell us about the crushing of our Savior? Listen to Hebrews 5, 7, which brings all these things together. The author of Hebrews writes this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his Fear because of his fear. He feared God, and God is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit who fear him. The first step in being wise, the first step in becoming a Christian, is to get yourself, by the grace of God, a broken heart and a desperate life. Until you see that you're naked and hopeless, you'll never really love Christ. And you have not yet taken really the first step toward wisdom. Our culture, you know this, our culture is obsessed with power. We say the stupidest things. We really do the most foolish things. We talk about boy power, girl power, man power, power over cancer. We write all these slogans, stronger than this, stronger than that. Are we not fools? The first step of wisdom is when you actually learn to know your own weakness, to know what you are left to yourself. This is the beginning of the fear of the Lord. But in that first step of being in awe of God and understanding who you are comes also the ultimate gift. It is to such people that the needy to the desperate that God bends his face, his listening ear, his open eyes. As Reformed Christians, we love the word covenant. We name our churches after it. We write about books named of it all the time, right? We, we talk about it constantly. Well, the beauty of that word covenant 
is that reminds us of what lays at the heart of all wisdom and all grace, that God would choose to be in relationship with us. Covenant is a way of saying that all the gifts God can give a person, of all the gifts he can give a person, none can compare to the gift of giving himself. Covenant is summed up in these words, I will be your God and you will be my people. Or to put it in the words of the psalm, my eyes are open to you. My heart is open to you. My ears are open to you. Through his suffering, David got wisdom into this grace that God is with his people watching and listening. And this brings us to our third and final stanza, verses 19 through 22. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David begins this last stanza with a really hard question. The hardest question, I think, that we can face in this life as believers. Why do then, since God is near to us, his ears are open, his eyes are open, why then do the righteous suffer so much if they are so loved? This, of course, is the question behind the whole book of Job that we've been studying together on Sunday mornings in Sunday school. And David has just said, it's kind of a a struggle within the psalm, right? Because David has just said earlier in the psalm, who wants a good life? Long days. Seek the Lord. You'll get these things. But what are we to make of those times when this doesn't seem to happen? For me, this became a very personal question. This psalm, as I mentioned, was synonymous with my mother's life in my mind and heart. Still is. It's why I didn't really want to even preach on it because of the emotions that kind of come up. But I couldn't skip it because it's just too good. But it's very much for me synonymous with my mother. So when she suddenly, unexpectedly was given three months to live in her 50s, it was hard to accept. My mother was a righteous woman. I think we can say unusually so. So was God's word false? Verse 12 says, if you reverence the Lord, your days will be long and your life will be good. I'm sure each of you have had personal examples of the struggle, and you can add those in here in your mind. What can we make of this? Well, verse 19 doesn't avoid the struggle, does it? He addresses it straight on. Many also are the afflictions of the righteous, or literally translated, many are the disasters of the righteous. So which is it? Which is it? I think David's answer and this can be seen in his life itself, is, well, it's both. It's both. Fearing God will save you from many hardships and bring great blessing into your life. And yet, there will still be many afflictions in this life. It was probably with great hesitation uh, and maybe some angst that the New York Times uh, published some statistics recently They did it somewhat quietly, but they did do it. The data that they had accumulated was clear, but it was also offensive. 
but it had been done by secular researchers and they couldn't hide the results. Women married to men who are strongly evangelical and faithful churchgoers are the happiest women and wives in the United States statistically. They experience the lowest rate of abuse of any demographic as well as the lowest levels of divorce of any demographic in the nation. Now, I know, let me just say right away, not every believer here has enjoyed that experience. But the numbers do point to God's promise. Fearing God saves us from many hardships. That's why we don't have as a church a 50-55% divorce rate. Does that mean all our marriages are what they should be? No. But the fear of the Lord helps us a lot. That's David's point here. It's true. Obeying your parents, working hard, watching your words, guarding your mouth. All these acts of wisdom are hugely helpful in living a secure and impactful life. Data upon data only confirms what the Bible has already declared. David then is in the right. He's in the right when he says that from his experience, he learned to fear the Lord and God blessed that. That being said, though, many are still the afflictions of the righteous. The world, the flesh, and the devil are still active and strong. We suffer persecution. We suffer the same basic hardships as our neighbors. We face cancer. We face death, poverty, and loss. David's own life shows all of these realities. His life is the coming together of these two seemingly opposite points of view. And don't you see that in your own life? On the one hand, if you've been a Christian for a while, you can say, in following God in these areas, I've avoided so many pitfalls. I can look at unsafe neighbors and friends and just see so many pitfalls fear of the Lord has delivered me from. And yet at the same time, we say so often, God, why me? Why have you allowed this into my life? The key, I think, to getting through that tension that we all feel is to look more closely at these verses. David almost anticipates what we might be thinking, so he explains. And I think the key here is verse 20 and 21. Look at what he says there. He that is God keeps all his bones, that is the one who fears him. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. Do you see what he just said there? Both the wicked and the righteous, it's the same word in Hebrew, both the wicked and the righteous experience affliction. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And then the same word, verse 21, afflictions will slay the wicked. So what exactly is the difference? If my mom, who is a righteous woman, godly woman, faithful woman, got incurable rare cancer, and meanwhile somewhere else in the country, someone who absolutely hated God got the same affliction, what is the difference? Well, here's the difference. It's right there. None of his bones will be broken. That's the difference. None of his bones will be broken is a way of saying, it's poetry. It's a way of saying that no evil we go through as followers of Christ will leave a permanent mark on us. Of course, David isn't being literal here. Righteous people can break bones. Some of you have had that experience. No, it's a poetic way, a poetic way of saying the afflictions God-fearers go through will not last. They won't destroy them. They won't break any bones. The wounds are painful, but they're not fatal. That's what he's saying. 
The best verse in the psalm is saved for the end. Here's the gospel, and it's all its simplicity and beauty. David writes as he ends, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. That's the point. They all, they, we both go through afflictions, but rather than destroying us, the Lord redeems, he buys us out of his servants, out of afflictions. None of those who take refuge in him will ultimately be condemned. And remember God, David's earlier promise, no one who looks to him will ever be ashamed. This is God's greatest promise. And the one wisdom alone can see that when affliction has done its worst, it can only ever move us closer to God. Even if your affliction means your death, if you're a believer, death can only take you to the righteous Christ and to his glory. And so you see, death has lost its stinger and the grave has lost its victory. No one who looks to him will be condemned and no one who looks to him will be ashamed. Meanwhile, and this is heartbreakingly sad, those outside of grace will just die in their afflictions. They have nothing to grab onto, nothing to hope in. The wisdom of David after his deliverance is this. Both the wicked and the righteous will have afflictions, but the ending, the effect of the afflictions will be entirely different. David was not original in this metaphor of the broken bones. You will recall maybe that the Passover lamb was to be fed to the people, but God very intentionally said, when you butcher this lamb for the Passover, you are not to break any of its bones. And many centuries later on the cross, this verse reached its appointed climax. The gospels tell us that when the soldiers came to break Jesus's legs, he was already dead. And this was done to fulfill what was written. None of his bones shall be broken. You see, Jesus died between two miserable rebels, one who repents, one who doesn't. But to many eyes, he just looked like another wretched criminal. Many are the afflictions of God's anointed. And yet God delivered him from them all, and no bone was broken. Of course, Jesus suffered and died, but God restrained the breaking of bones for a reason. It didn't matter. He was dead. He could have done it. But God restrained it for a reason. He wanted to make a point. It was a symbol for all time that whatever God's people go through, in the end, it cannot leave a mark on them. David learned in all this the great promise of wisdom. The great promise of wisdom, I think, is this that God has left all the troubles in the life of his people, but he has, as it were, sucked out all the poison. It can do them no final harm. And in seeing this by wisdom, he touched prophetically on the verge of history. He saw the day of Christ and he rejoiced to see it. Now, how about you? Can you see? Can you learn the wisdom of David? Can you hear his lessons from the other side of his suffering? Then fear the Lord and blessed is the man or woman who takes refuge in him. Amen. Indeed, in this life, Father, our situation seems very little different in many ways from those around us. 
We live, we suffer, we die, we work, we struggle. And yet none of our bones are broken. Not one hardship of this life can endure that moment when Christ returns. And though we have the promise that he has his scars and glory, we also have your promise that we will have none. So bear up your people in wisdom through their struggles and help them to reverence you in everything. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is number six.